TED Audio Collective. This is Zigzag. I'm Anoush Samarodi. And our second season is all about trust and information. And on this episode, just the facts, ma'am. Well, just the fact-checking, ma'am. In the first two episodes, we dove into how misinformation spreads, how facts get subverted, and why that's dangerous for democracy. But the very heart of all of that lies in the beauty and simplicity of even identifying what a fact is. And today we're going to talk with one man who has made it his life's work and invented an entire genre of journalism dedicated to the holy fact. Right now, there are 156 fact-checking operations around the world, triple what there was just four years ago. And with so much information zinging around the internet these days, how do those fact-checkers decide what to even fact-check? The role of the fact-checker is to satisfy people's curiosity. Is that true? Bill Adair, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's made assessing the accuracy of information his life's mission. Plus, some feedback from you, dear listeners, on what you think of ZigZag Season 2 so far. I hope we don't have to keep talking about civil. Stick with us. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Not to get existential about this, but does it, does it matter? Do people care and how do, we, how do we measure if they do care based on putting the truth out there? Can I, can I just give an example from this morning that was pretty cool? Um, so I was helping... Um, I met Bill Adair last month at an event put together by Humanities New York. The panel was called Our Fake Reality, Journalism, Legitimacy, and Post-Fact America. And yes, that very morning, he had helped fact-check an ad that a political action committee, or PAC, was running about some amendments on the ballot in North Carolina. And what was cool was, even before we finished the fact-check, the PAC had pulled the ad because we were fact-checking it. So, does it matter? Yeah, baby. Um, and I love that. Bill is basically the unofficial dean of the small but vital fact-checking world. His official title is director of the Duke Reporters Lab at Duke University, where he's also a journalism professor. And after the panel, I was dying to hear more about how Bill helped make fact-checking a thing and how that job has changed in a time when people can't even agree on what a fact is. Hi, Manoush. Yay, we made it happen. And it didn't take, like, months. <laughs> Bill looks exactly like you might be imagining. He's kind of a preppy white guy. Blue-collared shirt, maybe a blazer or a fleece, depending on the occasion. 
black-rimmed glasses, and brown hair graying at the temples. He is warm and jovial and generous with his time. But Bill wanted to kick things off by clarifying that there are two different kinds of fact-checking in journalism. The first is the basic verification of reporting. Where at the end of writing an article, the author and sometimes editors, sometimes people who are dedicated to this, um, go in and verify the accuracy of every sentence. But there's another kind of fact-checking that really gets Bill going. That form of journalism takes a statement by a politician or a political candidate, typically. It might be in a campaign commercial. It might be in a speech. And the journalist researches the statement and then determines how accurate it is. The unemployment rate has just fallen to the lowest level in more than 50 years. But it wasn't until the 2004 presidential campaign that fact-checking really got a turbo boost, as Bill says, when official fact-checking websites like factcheck.org and a few years later, PolitiFact launched. Factcheck.org was the first dedicated fact-checking organization. And then I started PolitiFact in 2007, the same year that the Washington Post started its own dedicated fact-checking operation. And because the Internet was then finally reaching a mass audience, that's when um, fact-checking or what I think of as political fact-checking really came into its own as a distinct form of journalism. For those who maybe aren't familiar, can you describe what PolitiFact, why you founded it and what the methodology was and maybe how that's changed? Um, So I founded PolitiFact out of my guilt. Uh, (laughs) I was a... I was a reporter covering the White House in 2003 and 2004, and I felt like we were not doing enough fact-checking of the White House and of Congress, and we were basically just passing along what politicians were saying without examining whether they were accurate or not. And so so I went to my editors, and I proposed that we start a fact-checking website. And they agreed. At the time, Bill was the Washington bureau chief for the St. Petersburg Times, which is now the Tampa Bay Times, the largest newspaper in Florida. And they called their new fact-checking website PolitiFact. It was unique because it broke fact-checking down to the individual statements. And then we rendered a rating a judgment on each statement about how accurate it was from true to the lowest rating, pants on fire, um, which was originally a joke, um, but came to be a real rating uh, that PolitiFact uses for the most ridiculous falsehoods. They call their rating system the truthometer. For example, President Trump's statement that all across Ohio, Ohio steel mills are reopening. That is rated as a half true. Steel mills are opening in some parts of the state, but not all across the state. Another statement that the president said recently got a pants on fire rating when he said a quote recent opioid bill that had reached his desk had very little Democrat support. Actually, virtually everyone in both parties voted for the bill. Every statement that gets checked by PolitiFact, and now most fact-checkers around the world, goes through this process. 
So they will start by going to the candidate or the campaign or in the case of the president, they'll go to the White House or in the case of a member of Congress, go to the member of Congress's office and say, your person just made this statement. We'd like to see the backup materials for that. What justification do you have for this factual claim? We've often found that they will provide links to things that really don't back up the accuracy of a claim. <laughs> what do you do then? Uh, well, then you uh, you go back to them and you say, you know, hey, you sent me some links to maybe opinion articles or things, but they really don't prove what uh, the member of Congress said. Can you provide anything else? Uh, and they might engage with you. They might not. But what you're describing is it takes time. It does. It does. And this is difficult journalism. Uh, and this is also controversial journalism because you, this is a journalism where you, you're ultimately going to render a judgment on the accuracy of the statement. And that's going to often make people unhappy. So, uh, but then you try your best to find other independent sources that can help you verify the accuracy of the statement or tell you if the statement is true or not true. And independent is the key. Um, you want to try to find someone who is nonpartisan, which is increasingly difficult these days. We interviewed 13 different military experts for a fact check on a claim made by Mitt Romney. And so, you know, you'll often do that. You'll try to interview um, many people to make sure that you cast a wide net and get lots of different opinions. Now, what you're describing is someone who works for a place that isn't having to post 20 pieces a day. Like, you know, so I know some reporters who, like, they have a quota. They have to post, like, seven times a day, and they're not going through this process. Yes, you're right. It's very, um, it's very different than other kinds of journalism because once the reporter writes the fact check, there is a line editor who edits the article and then will then forward it to two other editors, and then the editors are involved in a process um, that at PolitiFact we call the Star Chamber. The Star Chamber is where the editors assess the recommended truth-a-meter rating, and by having three people involved in it, it gives more integrity to the process and it reduces the likelihood that uh, you're going to make a bad call. Can you just like, so you guys, like there's three of you locked in a room and you're like debating <laughs> and you're like a mini Supreme Court or what? There's a process to it that's pretty cool. Uh, and that is there are four questions that we ask of the reporter as we consider the statement. The first is, did we contact the person who made the statement? Uh, then we say, is the statement literally true? Uh, and then the third question is, is there another way to read the statement, which forces us to look at whether there is any sort of other meaning in the wording that we might not have thought of. And then the final question of the four is, um, what is our jurisprudence on this? And this is uh, like judges talking about, you know, what has the Second Circuit uh, ruled on this? Um, by asking this, we ensure that the reporter has looked at previous truth meter rulings to make sure that we're consistent. 
Bill estimates that PolitiFact has given out around 15 to 16,000 truth-o-meter ratings to statements. It's a labor-intensive, time-consuming process, which is why now Bill is experimenting with ways to speed up fact-checking. Yeah, and enough with the humans. It's time for some robots in this process. The future of fact-checking in just a moment. Hello, ZigZag. This is Dr. Ernie in Silicon Valley. This is Desdemona from Austin, Texas. Well, we have heard from quite a few of you recently about our new season of the show. Thank you for season two. So excited you guys are moving forward despite the drama and the trauma. Some of you were really into it. I was calling to tell you just how uh, much I've enjoyed the beginning of season two. I totally love it when smart women like yourselves, I swear. A few of you are feeling kind of frustrated about civil and the blockchain for journalism story. I hope you guys move on to something where you can be really successful and we don't have to keep talking about civil. What drives me crazy is that there are people you love that are stuck in a system and a mindset that perpetuates the problem. We've also heard that you really appreciate what we're trying to do. You're creating a real-time audio show of one of the greatest live experiments. But one or two of you have a hankering for the more, shall we say, confessional tone of season one. The reason I am infatuated by your podcast is because the raw emotion and the boldness. But they seem to be lacking in this new season. Yeah, maybe it's more exciting to hear a struggle But now it's time to get down to doing the real work to make change. And that seems to resonate with most of you. Just feel a lot of of kinship. Really appreciate what you're all doing. We love hearing from you listeners. Please keep your thoughts and ideas and feedback coming. Our email is zigzag at stableg.com. Just so you know, Jen will be back here next week to say hi and check in. She's been editing next week's episode. Uh, More about that at the end of the show. Okay, back to what we've been doing. This week, we're going hog wild on the role that facts play in how we develop a sense of trust in our leaders, in journalism, political discourse, the world around us. So let's get back to Bill Adair, Professor Fact Checker. Bill left PolitiFact in 2013, and he went to Duke University. And there, at the Duke Reporters Lab, he and a team of researchers have about eight projects in the works, which they hope will eventually help fact-checkers everywhere. And at the heart of all their experiments, tech and automation. Of course. There are things that are tedious and repetitive. And one of them is finding the claims that fact-checkers choose to fact-check. That process is typically done by college interns who every day go through transcripts of 
TV talk shows and congressional debates, and they watch campaign commercials, and they look at Twitter feeds. Well, it turns out that if you have really smart computer scientists, they can write an algorithm that can predict when a sentence is of interest to a fact checker. Those really smart computer scientists call this new algorithm Claim Buster. It's still in the testing phase, but right now, every day, Claim Buster scans transcripts from cable news shows to the congressional record, Twitter, Facebook, and picks out questionable statements. Then it emails a list of those statements to fact checkers at the AP, the New York Times, the Washington Post, you name it. Every morning and afternoon, they get an email, and about 16 or 17 times in the past three months, four months, they have chosen to check claims that have been found by our bots this way. So that's promising. Claim Buster can watch cable news at night when the fact checkers aren't able to or don't want to. Another project Bill and the team are working on is called Talking Point Tracker. We're going to be analyzing closed captions from cable news channels so that we can have sort of an early warning system (laughs) so that the fact checkers, and really not just the fact checkers, but also political editors, producers, talk show bookers will know, hey, you know, here's a talking point that is on the rise. Um, We may want to keep an eye on this one, or we may want to book someone on this, or we may want to fact check that statement. So there's, you know, there's definitely potential for this kind of technique. Are there people who don't like this, who think like what you're doing is like fundamentally bad? Well, there are definitely people who are skeptical about fact-checking, and I think this grows from the general skepticism of the mainstream media that has caused a decline in the standing of the media in the last 20, 30 years, Uh, and and by extension, that hurts the fact-checkers too. Uh, We did a study here at Duke that we called Heroes or Hacks, the Partisan Divide over Fact-Checking. And what we found was that on the left, that uh, liberal publications praised fact-checkers, cite fact-checking often, use phrases like heroes. And on the right, they use words like hacks and are much more likely to be critical of fact-checking and will often put fact-checking in quotation marks to suggest that it is not a legitimate thing, like fact-checking. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, And I think that's a problem. I think that's a larger problem than just fact-checking. Uh, I think that speaks to decades of criticism of the mainstream media by people on the right. Does that just get rid of the need for fact-checking at all? Because if no one's going to believe the people who are doing the fact-checking, what does it matter? Well, it's kind of a lot bundled in that question with decades of just relentless criticism of the mainstream media that I do not believe is warranted that has had a really corrosive effect on the standing of all mainstream journalism, including fact-checking. I think that's had a really negative effect, and it worries me a lot. 
what do you think um, – I'm wondering if the future of fact-checking is going to help that standing at all. Um, we have an experimental project called Truth Goggles where we're experimenting with different ways to present fact-checking that might make it more appealing to different audiences. The idea is to sort of remove – words that might prompt a negative reaction from particularly partisan consumers. Just the name alone makes me laugh because, like, I'm thinking beer goggles. Isn't that a great of, name? It's so good. Uh, so truth goggles, you know, the idea is that a fact check would be adapted so that if your political leanings uh, might make you resistant to certain terms – about an issue such as, say, gun control or something that we're going to experiment with presenting the exact same fact check, not changing the facts at all, but just changing the wording a little bit and see if we can make the fact check more popular with an audience that would otherwise be turned off by phrases. You know, and this speaks to the idea that when reporters write a fact check, they might use words that inadvertently bother readers um, and set off a negative reaction. Truth goggles are one of the more out-there ideas about what fact-checking could eventually look like. Other fact-checking projects are at various stages of development. Like our app, FactStream, which you can actually download now and provides the latest fact-checks every day. Uh, that we're using as a platform to test live pop-up fact-checking to a very ambitious automated fact-checking project where we're using voice-to-text. We're actually automating listening to a speech and then matching the speech with previously published fact-checks and automatically popping up fact checks. So we're getting much closer to the goal of having an app where you'll be able to watch the State of the Union address. And when the president makes a statement, it will detect what the president has said and automatically pop up a related fact check that has been previously published and say, you know, here's a, here's a related fact check. I used to think that what I just described to you was five years away, and I now think we'll do that in the next year. So that's what we've been working on. What would the finished product look like? Uh, so in the last week, we brought in people in Seattle and had them watch segments of the State of the Union addresses of President Obama and President Trump, and we had the people watch fact checks presented in different ways on the screen, the consensus was people really liked this idea. So they loved the idea that they would get real-time fact checking. There did seem to be a, a surprising number of people wanted more information. So give me more facts. Don't just say, Trump just said this, it's false. Tell me why it's false and give me the accurate statistic. In our last minute, literally, um, is there a message that you have for listeners about, you know, we're in a – things are tense right now in this country uh, and in other countries as well. Like, is there – what are your best – like, what's the best tip you can give someone who wants to be informed but who also feels overwhelmed? 
take time to get the facts. Um, we're going to do our best to help you get them sooner and more easily. But um, I just think it's so important to get the facts before you jump to conclusions. We need to sort out the truth before we act impulsively. Mm. Bill, thank you so much for taking the time. You bet, Manoush. Happy to help. Okay, not necessarily advice that you haven't heard before, but isn't it kind of comforting to know that there are journalists and technologists working together to figure out not only how we fact check things, but ways we might even alleviate some of the emotional reaction that we have to information. It's fascinating. By the way, right now, one of the things that all the journalists using Civil's publishing tools can do is label their articles, like on-the-ground reporting or opinion, just to be really clear where the information they're putting out there is coming from. So the journalists on Civil are experimenting with this stuff already. It's worth noting also that panel that I mentioned at the beginning of the show where I first met Bill, I also met Karen Mahabir. She is head of fact-checking at the Associated Press. And I thought it was so interesting. Karen says that she typically gets two polar opposite responses from readers about her team's fact-checking work. You know, we often, with our AP fact-checks, we get sort of two main responses to them. And one is, stop picking on this person. And the other is, why didn't you go far enough and just call it a lie? And, you know, I I mean, it's really a 50-50 thing. Split in half. People are seeing the world very differently right now. The Atlantic's Selena Zito explains that disconnect really well, I think, when she writes, when Trump makes claims, the press take him literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Friends, just to note, this episode is hardly comprehensive of all the debates going on right now about facts and truth and fact-checking. I am always linking to all the articles I've been reading on all the stuff we talk about here at zigzagpod.com and in our newsletter. So please go subscribe to that or forward it to someone who you think might be interested in this stuff. Okay, next week, how, or actually I should say where, we might be able to come together. Sociologist Eric Kleinenberg. When we have a neglected social infrastructure, Mm. you know, when we let things fall apart, when we have schools that are hostile environments, when the parks are fenced up or aren't properly maintained, when the subway is late all the time and the trains are too crowded, we become more hostile to one another. And and we become more (laughs) likely to kind of turn inwards and to give up on the collective project. Libraries, parks, public pools, a well-functioning subway, Are these spaces slowly dying? Where do you mingle with your neighbors and members of your community? And how have those places influenced your sense of connectedness or civic involvement even? Send us a voice memo. You may hear yourself on the show next week. Or better yet, record that voice memo in a public place that has meaning to you, where tax brackets and the color of your skin hopefully don't matter. We'll be talking about how these places influence our daily lives and how they might be the best starting point for mending some of our differences. 
on that note. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyan. David Herman is our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks to our other audio engineer, Dan DeZula. And a very big welcome to producer Thalia Beatty. You'll get to know her more in episodes coming up. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi. Thank you so much for listening. Jen, Manoush, I love your show and will always be part of the Stable Genius Cult. Shine on you crazy diamonds.